Hey everyone, it's Alex from Alex and Books, and you're listening to The Reader's Journey, the podcast that takes you on a journey to meet amazing authors, discover brilliant books, and learn valuable lessons along the way. Now, let's get started. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Reader's Journey. Today, we have Morgan Housel, author of The Psychology of Money. Morgan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Alex. Happy to be here. So I've read a lot of books about finance and investing, but what I really enjoyed about your book is that you get into the psychology of money and like why people make certain decisions. And I think a great place to start would be by talking about how we all view money differently. And you give this great example of how some people buy lottery tickets because they think it's a good investment, but that's not the case now, is it? No. So, I mean, what's really important about money is that we all have completely different backgrounds And we come from different generations, different parts of the country, different parts of the world, families who have different values. But we all tend to think about, you know, when we are when we are taught about money, it's taught like it's the same thing for everybody and that everyone's going to have the same goals and the same values and they want the same thing, even though we have totally different backgrounds that lead us to view the world through a very different lens. And that's really important to realize that there's no one right answer in finance for a lot of financial questions like how much should I say? What should my goals be? Is this like, what's the right risk tolerance? It depends on who you are and what generation you're from, what you've seen in your life, the experiences that you've had from different generations. So let me give you a, a, a few examples of that. If you were born in 1950 in the United States, then what the, the stock market did during your teens and 20s, which are your young, impressionable years when you're learning kind of like a baseline a foundation of knowledge about how the world works in your teens and 20s, the stock market uh, went nowhere after inflation. If you were born in 1950, you had no return whatsoever during that like 17-year period. If you were born in 1970, then the stock market during your teens and 20s went up tenfold that, that you saw. So, the, And then that experience that two generations had during their lives, that stuck with them for the rest of their life. They went through the rest of their life thinking a different thing about what the stock market was capable of doing and the amount of risk that it had embedded in it because they have different experience in life. The lottery ticket example that you brought up is something that I mentioned in the book too that's, that, that I've always found very interesting, which is the, the demographic that buys the most lottery tickets in the United States by far, they buy the overwhelming majority of lottery tickets are the poorest Americans, Americans who come from the lowest income decile, have the lowest incomes in America. They buy most of the lottery tickets. They spend on average $400 per year on lottery tickets. And it would be easy for someone like myself or you or probably most of your listeners to look at that and say, well, that's dumb. You made a very poor decision. You're already broke and you're spending your money on lawn scratcher tickets at 7-Eleven. That's a very bad decision. And of course, like uh, uh, I'm not saying it's the right decision, but if you try to put yourself into someone's shoes, like that, someone who is from the very lowest income groups, who is struggling to get by, who probably feels, many of them, that they are locked into that income group, that they don't have a lot of hope for moving out of it, for getting promoted up the corporate ladder to where you're going to have a big a big salary in the future. If you have that view, and that's probably generalizing, I want to be sensitive to that, but if you have that view, they don't have the ability to reach for a higher level of income. It feels out of grasp for them because maybe they don't have the right connections, right education, whatever it might be. Then if you have that view that buying a lottery ticket is the only time in your life that makes them feel like they have a chance to get to the other side, let's say. And therefore, I don't necessarily, uh, I, I, I don't think it's right. I don't support it, but I kind of understand why they would do that. Why someone like myself or you or most of your readers would probably underestimate the narrative that's going through their heads when they buy a lottery ticket. And even though it doesn't make sense to us, it probably does make sense to other people who are doing it. 
who come from different backgrounds and different circumstances than uh, myself and many of your your listeners would do. So that's why it's just important to realize that everyone has a different view of the world based off of their own experiences. And because of that, we all think about money in very different ways. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. You may look at someone making a certain financial decision and you might ask, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. But once you step into their shoes, you kind of understand where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing. So I think that's a great point you make in the book. And I think another great uh, important lesson that you share in the book is that it's not necessarily that money that makes you happy, but it's the freedom that money gives you. Can you elaborate more on that idea? Well, it's just this idea that, you know, if you are fortunate enough to have a, a decent income and some savings, like what are you going to do with that money? And uh, the, the point that I kind of have made many times in the past is when most people say they want to be a millionaire, what they actually mean is I want to spend a million dollars, which is that that's what they want to do. That's what they want to go out and buy, buy a nice car, or a nice house, nice clothes, whatever it might be. And uh, to me, like, and that's great. I love, fa- I love fancy cars. I love Ferraris. I love nice homes as much, but those kind of things tend to, the joy that you get from those tends to wear off over time. You get accustomed to it very quickly. This is where the typical answer would be, don't spend your money on stuff, spend your money on experiences. That's kind of like the cliche answer. And I, I, I often thought that that was incomplete as well, that if there is something you can do with your money to actually make most people happy and an enduring level of happiness that you're not going to get accustomed to. It's always going to feel great. It's using money to control your time and just waking up every day and being able to say, I can do whatever I want today. And maybe you, you want to wake up every day and go to work, but you can live where you want, work at the company you want, retire when you want to, quit your job when it starts to suck, like whatever you do. If you can control your calendar so that no one else gets to dictate when you do things, that is something that you can use money to do. To, to make, For most people, it's not only going to make them happier, it's going to be a lasting, enduring level of happiness. Yeah. And I, lo- I love this uh, example you share in your book where you got this uh, investment banking internship and you were super happy and you were making a lot of money. But the thing is, you were working six, seven days a week and you had like no time. And it's like that balance. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> it was miserable. Yeah. Yeah, and so- like investment banking was like my dream. All I wanted to do was get an investment banking job. I thought the bankers were like the coolest, most powerful, prestigious people in the world. And then I and I got and you could make a lot of money you know, early on in your career. Um, you know, right out of college, you can make six figures if you're in investment banking. There's not a lot of careers you can do that and as soon as i got there the first day i was like oh this is why they make a lot of money the job is terrible it's a miserable job they beat you up not physically but intellectually beat you up you know it's like work until 3 a.m uh just grinding out the most monotonous work and they had this saying there which was if you don't come to work on saturday don't bother coming back on sunday like that was just the culture of the place and it was so antithetical to how i think and how i want like what i wanted to do with my career that that even like even though it was like the money was better than you could make anywhere else at that age even after day one i was like get me out of here get me i'm not this is the most miserable i've ever been i want to run out of here and never come back which is basically what i did <laughs> yeah yeah such an important point is like a lot of people say they just want to make a lot of money but they don't understand like they don't also want to work six seven days a week and like you want to have that trade-off where you make money but you also can have your own time and i think that yeah it's such an important point to make some balance and look there's also like getting back to everyone thinks differently there are some people for whom their personality uh, thrives in the investment banking culture. So this is not like a blanket statement for everyone. But for me, it was like, no, 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 I want I want control over my time. I don't want someone telling me to sit at my desk until 3am with a smile on my face and like it. <laughs> like, I just didn't want that. I, I wanted to quit working when I when I was done working. So I found a job that let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. 
so now that we know we kind of know what money can buy, I like to go in the opposite direction and kind of talk about the few things that money can't buy you. And I think you call this the man in the car paradox. Can you tell us about that? So this comes from when I was in college. I was working as a valet at a, at a luxury hotel in Los Angeles. So a lot of wealthy people, fancy cars coming in. And it was a really cool job. But I often noticed that if someone drove in in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or a Bentley and whatnot, of course, heads turn and people look at the car. And I would look at the car. I would be impressed. I'd say, ah, oh, that's awesome. But what was actually going through my mind was not the driver is awesome and, oh, look at that cool guy driving in. What I thought was, wouldn't it be cool if I was the driver? Wouldn't it be cool if I had that car? And I just started thinking, does the person in the Ferrari driving in, does he know that I don't give a damn about him? I'm not paying attention to him. I'm picturing myself sitting in his seat. And therefore, he thinks he's getting a bunch of respect and admiration. And he thinks when he pulls in, everyone's looking at him. But we're not. No one cares about you. And therefore, why do I want the car? Because I think people are going to think I'm cool if if I have the car when I don't think the current driver is cool. Like there's this irony of what it is. Uh, of what people are trying to get. A lot of people will think that those fancy things will give you respect and admiration, but they actually don't because people want those because you know they, they picture themselves sitting in the car. So that was just kind of an eye-opening thing for me about like, what do I actually want? Do I, and I still love, I love Teslas, I love Ferraris, I love beautiful cars, but if like, what, what do you want it for? Or are you going to, do you want to buy it because you think it's going to gain you respect and admiration that people are going to look at you and say, Oh, Alex is cool. Morgan's cool. They got a cool car. Like that's probably not what's going to happen. People are going to see your car and wish that they had it. They're not, they don't care about you. So that just, that was a big kind of development for me of when I started thinking about what, what do I actually want to do with money? If I'm lucky enough to have some one day, what am I actually going to do with it? Um, and that, and that's why I drive a RAV4 and not a Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a funny point that you mentioned because I was actually on Instagram today, and uh, I was I remember this conversation I had a friend with uh, last week that a friend of a friend bought this really nice sports car, and we spent like ninety percent of the conversation talking about the car and not the person. And it's just exactly. so funny. That's that's it. And and look, I I I still might you know if I'm lucky enough, I still might get one one day. This is not like a plea to live like a monk. It's just realize what you're getting yourself into when you do this. And like, what is the purpose of doing this? And I think for a lot of people, the purpose of nice stuff, whether it's a big fancy house or clothes, nice clothes, is that you think other people are going to look at it and give you respect. And there is that to some level. I don't want to say, you know, pretend this is, this is black and white, but, um, you know, it was just shocking to me how little I cared about the people who, who thought that I cared about them. Right. And I think another important lesson you learned while working as a valet was that you could see if someone's rich by like looking at their car, but you can't see if someone's wealthy. And I think you had the story of one day uh, a guy was driving a Porsche and the next day he was driving a Honda. So can you kind of explain this idea of wealth is what you don't see? Yeah, I mean, what we see is what people have spent money on. That's what's visible in the world. The cars they drive, the homes they have, the things they've spent money on, that's what is visual to us. Wealth, though, is what you don't see. Wealth is what you've saved. And we can see people's cars, we can see their houses, we cannot see their brokerage accounts, we can't see their bank accounts, we can't see what they've saved. It's invisible by definition. And so there are a lot of people, you know, this was especially true in Los Angeles in the mid-2000s during the mortgage bubble, who drove Porsches and Ferraris, like had this appearance that they were very financially successful. And then I get to know some of these people, got to know them a little bit, and they were not 
They did not have the kind of jobs that you would think. They just spent all of their money on a car. That was it was just this appearance of like this fake it till you make it appearance thing. But the actual wealth, like they were not wealthy at all. So this guy that I that uh, was a member at the club that I worked at, he he was dry. He had a really nice Porsche. One day it was gone. And he basically said like he couldn't afford it anymore and it got repossessed. And I was like, I thought you were rich. I thought you had money. You can't even make your car payment. Like you're broke. And it was just this total shift of I went from like admiring him, like maybe like a financial role model because he was young, too. And he had this nice car. And I was like, I want to be like like this guy. And then all of a sudden it was like, no, you're broke. I am the valet, the guy who was parking your car. I, I had so much more wealth than he did. Like he couldn't afford his car payment. So it was that was like an eye opening thing for me. Yeah, I think it's such an important point to make is like wealth is what you don't see that person has. Like, uh, like just recently, a friend of mine, um, he always says like, oh, I can't go out because I don't have money. And he was always like kind of stingy with his, uh, like cash. But recently he just bought like a apartment for like half a million dollars. And it's like, wait, I thought you didn't have money, but like, you know, in actuality, he was saving all of it up. Right. And then I have another right. friend who he literally spent, uh, his like year salary on a car. And I found out like he's in credit card debt and like he looks rich, but he's not. And it's like you have this contradiction between the two people. Like, you know, some people look rich, but they're not. Some people look poor, but they're actually wealthy. So I think that's such an important point to make. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of wealth, uh, you mentioned in the book that income and investment returns actually have little to do with building wealth. And it's actually more about your savings rate. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So no matter how much money you make, whether you're making $20,000 a year or $20 million a year, the only way you build wealth is by spending less than what you make. And therefore, it doesn't necessarily matter how much – if you're talking about building wealth, it doesn't necessarily matter how much money you make. It is the difference between what you make and you spend. That is of such an obvious statement. I know that's not going to – that's not blowing anyone's brains out right now, but it's – but it's that's true. And it's so easy to overlook. And what's really important is that the amount that you spend – uh, you know, which is going to determine your savings rate is one of the only thing that's in your control. Like what the stock market does this year, it's not in any of our control and how much money we're going to earn this year, a little bit more in our control, but things happen. And like, it's, uh, you know, the raises up to your boss and it's, it's more out of our hands versus how much we spend and the lifestyle that we choose to live is much more in our control. Not a hundred percent because everyone, you know, your, your landlord can raise your rent. There's all these other factors, but it's more in your control than any of the income generating activities that we have, whether it's investing or earning just from our paychecks. Uh, so it's, it's the most important variable that's going to determine how much wealth you build over time is how much you, is how much you save. It's how much you spend. Like that's the lever that you should focus on, on pulling. Like one, one of the other ways to think about this is like, if you exercise at the gym, let's consider that your income. You go to the gym, you lift weights, you run on the treadmill, that's your income. But if as soon as you leave the gym, you head to Krispy Kreme and you eat a dozen donuts, it's all counteracted. So what really matters from exercising is not how much you work out, it's how much you work out and then don't eat afterwards. It's that gap. And it's the same with money. It's like, it's not necessarily how much money you make, it's how much money you make and then don't spend. It's like where you don't spend afterwards. That's the variable that really moves the needle over time. Mm, yeah. And I, it just reminded me from this point um, uh, from the Algebra of Happiness by Professor Galloway. He talks about he had a friend who was making a million dollars a year, but he was spending $1.3 and he was actually broke. And then his parents were only making 80000 a year, but they were only spending 30000 and th And then his parents were rich, technically. And it's, it's a fascinating concept that income doesn't really equal you know, wealth. 
it's so basic. And when you hear that, it's like, duh, of course that's <laughs> the case. But it's a really prevalent problem that a lot of people overlook. Totally. So uh, we know saving more is a valuable piece of advice. And you also advise people to be okay if, you know, 50% of their investments go bad because they could still make a fortune. And it seems counterintuitive, but can you explain this concept of uh, t how tail ends drive everything? It's 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 a really important thing in a lot of areas in life that tails, you know, the the a, that a minority of events will determine a majority of your results. And it's true in the stock market as well, where if you look at just like a basic index fund, a conservative low cost index fund that is made up of, you know, a thousand stocks, let's say. Uh, so it's very diversified over a long period of time, over 20 or 30 years, the majority of the stocks in that index, the majority of the individual components in that index will be terrible investments. Terrible investments. A lot of them will go to zero, like a, like a substantial portion. Historically, about 40% of those will go to zero. And the majority of your index returns will come from a tiny portion of the investments that you make. Uh, so so in an index you need, uh, of a thousand companies, you might have half of them that effectively go out of business. And then effectively all of your gains are going to come from 50 companies that do extraordinarily well. They, they turn into Amazon, Facebook, Google, those kind of companies. It's not intuitive that you can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune, but that's how a lot of things in finance work. It's true in business where you have companies like Apple that has experimented over the decades with dozens of different products, but there's really only one that moved the needle, which is the iPhone. That's what changed everything. It wasn't the Mac, Lisa, all the other products. Like the iPhone just did everything. It's the same for Amazon. Amazon has experimented with dozens of different things. But the only products that actually matter for the company is AWS and Prime. That's those are the two products that just move the needle for good. So you know those tails are all around us, and it's important to realize that that's it's normal because it's not intuitive to think that if you make like if you just go out and buy ten stocks and after five years four of them have gone out of business, you think you screwed up. You think you but that's that is that's actually if if that's your if that's your batting average, so to say, that's that's good. Like, like that's that, that's what you should expect. That's like the baseline assumption of what you should expect. Uh, so, like it, coming to terms with a normal loss rate and a pretty high loss rate in what you do is not intuitive and it's not easy, but it's a really important part of finance. Mm, yeah, and I, I really I like the piece you had about uh, Warren Buffett, where he shares he's made around five hundred investment decisions, but about ten of those have been responsible for the majority of the returns. If you even take out and actually. You know what's interesting about that? I wrote that before Apple stock blew up this year. I'm pretty sure I haven't run these numbers, but I think Apple, uh, th that 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 Buffett's investment in Apple has made more money from that one uh, company than probably um, the the huge majority of all the other stocks he's ever owned. It 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 might be close to what he's made on Apple is bigger than all he's ever made in the stock market on everything else together. And so that's always how it works. Um, you go down any great investor, that's the case. Benjamin Graham, I read about in the book, who is Warren Buffett's mentor, like the, the father of value investing. He owes all of his investing success, his career success to one stock, Geico. If you take that out of his track record, he was a know-nothing investor. And what was really interesting about it, this is a slightly different topic, but buying Geico for Ben Graham broke every one of his rules. Like the, the rules that he lays out in the textbook, never do this, always do this. He broke every rule to buy Geico. And it, it turned out to be the only com the only investment that he made that that actually made him a great investor over time. 
Yeah, so and it's so funny. Like when I look at my own portfolio, uh, I was lucky enough to buy a couple of stocks of Tesla, and like the Tesla gains from this year have just been incredible and responsible for like the majority of the returns. And it's like that one stock is driving the majority of your you know profits or the money that you made. And uh, sp- uh, speaking of Buffett, this is a perfect segue because this was like my next question. Uh, I love to talk about how powerful the compact uh, compound effect is because. You mentioned how Warren Buffett made 90% of his net worth after his 65th birthday. And it's it's hard to believe that. But can you share that story? Yeah. So uh, Buffett is today worth, let's just round and say $90 billion. It's in that that range. But if you look at the course of his life, because he's been famous for a long time, so there's a lot of information to go back. You know, when he was when he when he was when he was sixty years old, I'm fairly pretty sure this is right. When he was sixty years old, his net worth was three billion. When he was fifty years old, his net worth was three billion. So you know, you could just do the math from there. Like the huge majority, more than ninety percent of his net worth came when he was over 50, 60 years old. Um, so it's it's not, but that's and that it too is always going to be how compounding works. That the the gains in the early years are nothing exciting, and then they get better, and then the later years they just explode. And what's really important about Buffett is that uh, you know he's been investing full time since he's been 11 years old, and he's currently 90. So and that is what he that is why he is successful. If Buffett started investing when he was 25, like a lot of people would, and then retire when he's 60, like a lot of people would, you'd have never heard of him. You would have never heard of his name, even if he earned the exact same annual returns during that period of time. You would have never heard of him because his net worth would have been like – I read about this in the book. His net worth would have been like 10 or $15 million. He would have had a nice, lovely retirement. He could have bought a house in Florida and lived out his day, but you would have never heard of him. The reason he's successful is because of time. Like He's a great investor, but his secret is time because that's when compounding just gets ridiculous is when someone has been investing like him for 70 years. So his average annual returns are about 22% a year, which is amazing, but it's not enough to turn you into a household name. You become you, you become worth $90 billion when you can earn 22% a year for 70 years. That's what makes it ridiculous. Yeah. And just to like give another, another example, I saw on Twitter, someone posted, it took, I think, Apple like 30 years to uh, become a trillion dollar company, but it took them only three years to become a $2 trillion company. Like that's how quickly the compound effects just accelerates and grows. So that's like an incredible fact. Yeah. No, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it it never it never stops amazing me how uh, how powerful compounding is because it's not not intuitive. Now, that's why even if you you obviously understand the math, you know what compounding is. It's never going to get to the point where it's like it doesn't shock you. It's just so not intuitive. I use the example like in the book. If I told you, Alex. What is uh, eight plus eight plus eight plus eight plus eight? You could you could figure you don't have to do it, but you could figure that out really quickly. But if I said what is eight times eight times eight times eight times eight times eight, you would be like <laughs> like no, I, it's in a completely different universe. So like that compounding effect is just not intuitive. It's not what our brains are meant to compute. Mm, yeah, totally. And I, I think so. We have the compound effect. We know you should save more of your income. And I think another great uh, piece of advice you share that the single most powerful you could thing you could do as an investor is to increase your time horizon. Can you tell us why we should do that? I mean, that's, that's, this gets, there's two parts of it. One of it gets back to compounding. Like that's when compounding works the best, of course. But the other thing that we're trying to do as investors, the baseline thing we're trying to do is put the odds of success in our favor. Because investing is all about probability. There are no certainties. We're just trying to do something where the odds of success are going to increase and be in our favor. And the more you increase your time horizon, the more the odds of success in markets fall in your favor. The shorter your time horizon, the more you are relying on luck to fuel your success. 
if you're going to be successful at all. The longer your time horizon, the more you are that you know the probability of success approaches 100, and you are you are actually investing at that point. That the odds of of companies earning money and those profits accruing to you as a shareholder increase over time. So that's the one thing you can do, and it's in your favor. And you know, again, like what the Fed is going to do this year, uh, you can't you have no control over that. But increasing your time is something that you can that you can uh, do, and it, it it and is in your control. So that's why it's such an important aspect of investing. Yeah, and I, I like the the facts that you share is that the the historical odds of like making money in one year in the stock market is like sixty eight percent. But if you look at like a ten year basis, it goes up to eighty eight percent, and then in a twenty year horizon, it goes up to almost a hundred percent. So it's like the longer horizon you have. Right. And, and it's, it's really true for a lot of people, you know, most investors, if you ask them, are you a long-term investor? They will say, yes, they want to, they want to think of themselves as long-term investors. But then if you ask them, what does long-term mean? A lot of investors will tell you one year, or they might say three years, five years. That's definitely the long-term when you look historically at it and like the odds of making money after five years are maybe like a little more than 60%. So it's, it's not much more than a coin toss at that point. And that's why a lot of investors think in, that the stock market is a casino because for the time horizon that they are playing in, it is. And it's not until you've been investing for five, 10, 20, 30 years that it's not a casino anymore. Then this is, you're truly putting the odds in your favor. Mm, yeah yeah so, yeah if you look at long term it doesn't become a casino it just becomes like a waiting game and i think uh this, you talk about this in your book is like volatility is kind of the fee you have to pay the market can you can you share more about that so like obviously you can earn great returns in the stock market and it's just asking the question well why is that is someone just giving you the, that money for free or are they just like what, what is the cost of admission everything that's worthwhile in life has a cost to it. There's nothing for free. So what is the cost of investing? The cost of investing is pretty obvious over the long term. It's putting up with and enduring volatility. That's what you have to be. That's the entrance fee. If you want to earn the great long-term returns, you got to put up with the nonsense and the BS and the, the volatility in the run. That's what you got to do. Um, and then so then, the, but a lot of investors will view that volatility not as the fee, not as the cost of admission. They will view it as a fine. Like they screwed up, they did something wrong, and they should not do this again. Like they got pulled over by the police and they're in trouble. And once you view volatility as a fine, something that should be avoided that you don't want to do, you start doing all these crazy things to avoid it. You're, you're trying to uh, sell stocks before the next recession, trying to avoid the volatility. How do you hedge your portfolio? Whereas if you view it as a fee and a worthwhile fee, then you realize – then you, it just moves you towards this mindset that um, rather than trying to avoid volatility, you should just learn how to deal with it and endure it and put up with it and realize that it's the fee worth paying, that you're going to get a great return for paying that fee. You go to Disneyland and you pay like 100 bucks to park your car. It's ridiculous. But people think that fee is worth it because they're going to have such a good time with their family in there. So once you realize that the fee is worth it and it's not a fine, you're not in trouble, you didn't do anything wrong if your portfolio goes down 20%, then it just becomes easier to deal with volatility. Yeah. And yeah, and it goes back to the point we made earlier, like the longer your time horizon, the better it is. And even if half the investments don't, don't work out, you still have a great chance of making a, you know, a ton of money from it. So yeah, it all, all just comes together. And so you also talk about how, let's say someone is successful and they are rich and, you know, it's only human psychology that people get greedy. Like you talk about Bernie Madoff and uh, Gupta. And c can you share how we could kind of prevent ourselves from going over that edge and getting too greedy? 
it's always just this idea that there needs to be a concept of enough for everyone. You need to have this idea of, yes, you're going to take risks. Yes, you're going to be ambitious. You're going to swing for the fences, but you have to have a sense of enough because if you don't, you're going to keep pushing the envelope until you make a really regrettable decision, whether that's you go bankrupt or you end up in jail like these two guys that I wrote about, who are two guys, Bernie Madoff, well-known, and another guy named uh, named, named Rajat Gupta, who were both very successful in their own right. A lot of people don't know this about Bernie Madoff, but before he started his Ponzi scheme, he was ridiculously successful in a legitimate, non-fraudulent business. There's some estimates that he made 50 to $100 million legitimately, not robbing people, but from a real business. And he still thought that that was not enough. And he thought that was so little that it was worth robbing his best friends, robbing his family, ruining people's lives because he had no concept of enough. Uh, and it's the same with Rajab Gupta, a very successful CEO, became the CEO of McKinsey. His net worth was reported to be about $100 million. And he still was alleged, and he denies it, but he went to prison for it, um, a, this insider trading scheme about Berkshire Hathaway stock. He was on the board of Goldman Sachs. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett was about to invest a big check into Goldman in 2008. He tipped off a hedge fund manager. They made a little bit of money. Uh, so it was this other thing about like this guy had everything. He had all the money in the world and he still said it's not enough. I'm going to push the envelope and break the law so I can get a little bit more. Buffett himself has this great quote where he says, if you risk what you don't need uh, – no, pardon me. Let me say that again. If you risk what you need and able to gain what you do not need, that is foolish. Like you always have to say like, like realize what you need and what is important to you and don't risk that. You have to say like, oh, that's enough at some point. So everyone needs to like, regardless of what your income is or your net worth is, everyone needs to have an idea of just that's enough. Because if you don't, you're just going to keep pushing the envelope until you regret it. Yeah. And it's, it's such a valuable piece of advice. Like you want to stop pushing that goalpost because like your goal might be 1 million, but then you want 10 million and then you want more. And Never it's ends. like, yeah. And you're willing to take more risk or unnecessary risk, like you mentioned, to just get that money. And it's like you, you have to kind of settle down and, uh, you know, get get your uh, emotions and like psychology in control before, you know, you end up on the wrong side of the uh, transaction or, you know, end up in jail even worse. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, you kind of touched upon this. But could you talk about the two sides of the same coin uh, where you have luck on one side and risk on the other and how those play in the investment world? So most investors are keenly aware of risk. They spend a lot of time talking about risk, focusing on risk. They hire risk managers and they adjust the returns for risk. Like risk is this big topic. Luck, though, it tends to get swept under the rug. We don't talk, no one adjusts their returns for luck. No one hires luck managers. Like we don't just talk about luck very much, but luck and risk are pretty much the exact same thing. They are both just this idea that there are things that can happen in the world outside of your control that will have a bigger impact on outcomes than anything you intentionally did. That's what risk is. And that's what luck is as well. And so when you realize like those are the same thing, you realize that there is a lot of luck and risk in the world. Like we're so keenly aware of how much risk is in the world because we feel it and it hurts and we want to, we want to avoid it. Uh, but luck is different because we love luck when it happens to us and we love it when it happens to other people because we love other, you know, you know, you know, a, a famous hedge fund manager who became a billionaire and we're like, ah, oh, that's great. I want to be like that guy. Well, was he just lucky? We don't know. And that's part of the problem is that you can't actually measure it. You, you know that luck is out there and it's a big factor, but since you can't measure it, and particularly it's rude to accuse someone else of being lucky. If someone is successful, they have 
a successful business or they made a successful business, uh, a successful investment, you can't just say, well, you got lucky because you look like a jerk if you say that. And when it happens to yourself, you don't want to say, well, I just got lucky because that makes yourself feel bad. So we tend to just ignore luck, even though it is as prevalent and as powerful as risk is that we pay so much attention to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a great point you made. It's so hard to separate the value, the variable of luck in our investment decisions and in life. And uh, I love how you mentioned how you could make a great decision, but just get bad luck and you won't end up on the cover of Forbes. But if you make like a bad decision or a bad investment, but you get lucky with it, you could end up on the cover of Forbes magazine. You do, <laughs> right. So that's why like we, we had, there's such a, a lopsided uh, level of attention that we pay to luck and risk, even though they're the same thing. So there, there are for sure. And I don't know who they are because I don't want to look like a good jerk and name these people. But you know with certainty that there are billionaire investors out there, household names who just got lucky. We can't measure that. So I don't know. But you know it's true. It has to be true. If you just think of, you know, there are tens of millions of investors out there. What are the odds that by, by chance a couple of them are going to end up billionaires? The odds are 100%. That's that someone is going to just completely knock it out of the park by luck. One one person, if I want to name names, although I, I really respect and admire him, but George Soros has said in the past that when he's explaining his investing process, he says, um, you know, he, he's made a lot of money in the past because he knows the market is about to turn down when his back starts to hurt. And you're like, well, that's obviously nonsense. That's obviously ridiculous. So if that's how you made your money, then I know you just got lucky. <laughs> Like there's some things like that where you're like, okay, okay, there's no way that that's, that that is core actually correlated with like a smart decision that you made. That's just some kind of voodoo nonsense that you made up. So there you hear some things like that and you start to become a little bit more, you know, just, just aware of how prevalent luck is. Yeah. I think we all know like one person or like a friend of a friend who just bought Bitcoin, maybe like five or eight years ago, just, you know, for fun or, and like forgot about it. And then a couple years later, now they're like a Bitcoin millionaire. And like they didn't know what the, what the currency was going to do. They didn't know anything about cryptocurrency. But now it's like they just got lucky and made a ton of money off of like, you know, a $10 Bitcoin investment way back when. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I have a few friends that actually watch uh, like finance TV and like these business shows that kind of tell you like what stocks to buy and like what kind of investments to make. But I like how you're uh, in your book, you talk about how. The financial investment you want to make really depends on who you are. Can you can you kind of talk more about like uh, that? You know, you can't just listen to some guy on TV to giving you business advice. It really depends on like who you are and your goals, and more on that. Yeah. So if you're watching, you know, CNBC or Bloomberg or anything else, uh, you know, you will have they'll, they'll have guests on who say, you know, making this up. You should buy Microsoft stock. And I've always just thought, well, who who are you talking to? Are you talking to a 19-year-old day trader? Are you talking to a 90-year-old widow? Because like who like the advice for one per like good advice for one person can be a disaster for another person, depending on who you are. And we all have completely different goals. And there's such a wide spectrum of what you can do in the markets. You can be a day trader, you can be a high frequency trader, you can be a long-term buy and hold investor. So the I the idea that, you know, that you can go on and talk to a you know, a, a big TV audience and give and give like one size fits all advice is crazy, but that's what we tend to get. And I don't blame people for like that because you can't go on TV and give individual advice for everyone out there, but you have to realize that there are multiple games being played in, in the financial world from day traders and high frequency traders to long-term investors. And you've got to be really careful that you don't take your cues and take your advice and information from people who are playing a different game than you. 
Because look, if you are, you know, a, you know, you're 20 years from retirement and you own a bunch of, of low cost funds and you're just going to invest for the next 20 years. And then you turn on CNBC and it's a guy who's saying, you need to sell, you need to get out. There's a recession coming sell now. That might be great advice. If you are a short-term trader and you are being judged based off of your monthly returns, like a lot of hedge funds are. But if you're someone who's going to retire 30 years from now, that advice does not apply to you at all. It's not relevant to you. So it's just really being, you know, making, just being aware that people are playing different games and only seeking out cues and advice from people who are giving advice to the same game that you are playing. Yeah, that is such a great point. It's like, it really depends on your situation and your goals. And like, you can't give a blanket, um, you know, financial advice. Just like when people ask me for book recommendations, I can't just recommend one book for everyone. It really depends what you're interested in, what you want to learn. And you really want to give like tailored specific advice to that person. Yep, exactly. And so speaking of giving advice, what would you tell someone, let's say they're 25 years old, you know, they're out of college, they've been, they have a job. Uh, like what kind of financial advice would you give them, uh, like during this time? I mean, it's, it's so, it's so different during this time because so much depends on, do you have, do you have a job? Are you going to maintain your job? Have you been laid off in the last six months? Like everyone's in this such, everyone got thrown upside down right now. But I think if there's just a lesson from 2020 that applies to a lot of people in their finances, it's just the value of room for error in your finances. You go back to February of this year. And a lot of businesses were at all-time highs. People felt like their employment prospects were great. Unemployment was the lowest it had been, I think, ever. It was all-time low. And then poof, like boom, everything's gone. A lot of businesses went bankrupt. Tens of millions of people lost their jobs that are still out of work. And I just think that's – actually, if you look back throughout history, like dealing with what we've dealt with in 2020 is unique. But every 10 years or so, the world breaks and the world falls apart pretty consistently every 10 years. Whether it is, you know, this year we had COVID-19, 2008 was a financial crisis, September 11th and the dot-com bust, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the huge inflation in the 1980s, JFK being assassinated, the Cold War, World War II, the Great Depression. Every 10 years, there's something that just rattles the whole world. And when you realize that that is just like an enduring characteristic of history, it leads you more towards saying, okay, I want to have a bigger buffer in my in my finances, more room for error, more cash, more bonds, more savings than I thought I needed during the boom times. And what's important about this is that a lot of people will say, well, that money that you have in cash and bonds, you know, you're not earning a good investing return. Don't you want to invest in the stock market? Which like, of course, that would like, of course, in an ideal world, yes. But in the real world, where you have periods where 40 million people lose their job in a month because of a virus, no, you want to make sure that you uh, that the odds that you will ever have be forced to sell the stocks that you do own are as low as possible so that you can endure a category five hurricane in your own life, your own financial life and your job prospects where you get knocked on your on your rear and you can still get up and say, look, this is this sucks that I got laid off or there's a medical emergency, whatever it is, but I still have enough cushion and enough room for error to endure it. And therefore, the stocks that I do own, I'm going to let those compound forever. Charlie Munger has this great quote where he says, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily, which I love. Like that's, that is why people need room for error is specifically because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a valuable piece of advice. You want to have that cushion. And it's just fascinating how like the biggest things that move the stock market are always the things like we don't see coming like COVID-19. No one saw that coming. The financial crisis, like no one's, you know, believed in that. And like, you want to have that cushion because you never know what's going to happen. Because like the biggest things that move the needle are things that are impossible to predict. 
like September 11th outside of a few people from Al Qaeda, no one could have seen that coming. Just it was, it was an unknowable thing. So it wasn't that the forecasters, you know, got it wrong. It's just that it was unknowable. COVID is a similar thing. Like we know that the risk of pandemics has always been there, but do we know that it was going to be this kind of virus, this powerful happening at this time? No one could have known that. So, and that's always the case that the thing that matters the most is the risk that you don't see. The risk that we see and that we're talking about and the newspapers are writing about, it's not that they're unimportant, but since we're talking about them, we can prepare for them. We can adapt to them and adjust to them. It's the things that we don't see coming that just completely shock us and really shake the system up. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. No one saw this coming in the 2020. And uh, I have to ask you, since you do cover like finance for a living, like what do you think is going on with the stock market right now? Because like the you know unemployment rates are up, small businesses are closing down, but the stock market is like at an all time high. And like you know, Apple is two trillion, Amazon's about to hit two trillion. Like, what do you think is going on in the stock market? I think there's a few possible explanations for this. One of which is always just maybe it's crazy. Maybe this is just the next bubble, and there's no way to justify and of this and it's all going to come crashing down, of course, that's a possibility. If there are some factors in which I think could um, you know, try to justify where we are in the stock market, it's something like this. When we look at the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, we think that's like a very big diversified index. It has 500 companies in the S&P, which is true. But there's so much concentration among just a handful of companies that Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, just those five companies make up more than a quarter of the market. And those companies, those businesses are doing phenomenally right now because there's so much business. Like if you're Amazon, your sales are completely off the charts. Microsoft, Google, they're doing better than ever. And since they make up a disproportionate share of the stock market, that's where you get these things where Main Street businesses and even small public companies are struggling like never before. But the market's at an all-time high because the market is reflecting these five companies. So that's one of the things. The other is that you know there's just a ridiculous amount of support from the Federal Reserve right now. They're just blasting trillions of dollars throughout the economy. And the explicit goal to doing that is to prop up asset prices. So it's not even like a side effect. It's like, no, this is their this is what they're trying to do. This is like they've they're this is this is what they want to have happen. They want people they want the stock market to go up so that people will be richer and they will go out and spend money. That's that's the purpose of it. Um, so that's that's another you know point of it. The other thing is just like outside of the Federal Reserve, there's so much stimulus from the federal government in terms of enhanced unemployment checks that are now expired, but the stimulus package, the Paycheck Protection Program. We had this really weird thing where we have the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression, but incomes and spending is at an all-time high. Like It's this totally weird divergence. So if you think that spending, retail sales are the highest they've ever been this month. So like, is it that crazy that the stock market's at an all-time high? A lot of the money is shifted around, like travel and movie theaters are zero, but home improvement is off the charts. So it's just been shifted around a lot in a way that masks this dichotomy of so many businesses struggling, but so many businesses and the stock market thriving better than ever before. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating time, an interesting time to see like what's going on and like the shift of money. And yeah, it kind of relates to what we talked about earlier about the tail ends, how just these, you know, five tech companies are responsible for the majority of, you know, the stock market highs. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know, Incre- incredible it's a, it's a, what's going it's on. an incredible time yeah it's just not something it's not intuitive so every time you see it it's just like wow that's that's amazing and uh so i like how you and uh the book talking about um how like your own investment strategy and like what you do with your money i was wondering if you could share that with listeners yeah it's really simple i can explain it in like 10 seconds because it's so simple i dollar cost average into vanguard index funds 
we've paid off the mortgage on our house so that our personal finances are pretty solid that we don't you know there's a not is a lot there's a lot of room for error there and that's that's it that's it i mean that's that's how i that's what we do with our money um it's really simple and i just don't think it it needs to be very complicated i think if you're dollar cost averaging into some index funds and you are able to hold them for 30 or 40 or 50 years, if you can actually do that, and you're able to do that because your personal finances, your personal debt is at a very low level, then I think like the odds that I check every box of financial goals that I, I have for my family uh, seem pretty high. So that's like, I don't need to complicate it anymore because I think the odds of hitting all my goals are there. So why I don't I don't I just I don't see any need to pull any more levers. So I keep it as simple as humanly possible. That might change over time. I'm not I'm I'm not a passive investing zealot where I think you know, and like anyone who tries to beat the market is a full, like no I'm not I'm not that whatsoever. It's totally possible that I could change my investing strategy, invest in other you know other startups, other funds, whatever it might be. But right now I just keep it as plain vanilla simple as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you, you kind of take your own advice, save a lot of money and just have like a long time horizon and let the compound effect, effect uh, work as magic and it'll pay off. That's it. That's it. It's it's simple. And it's so simple that a lot of smart people can't take it seriously. They want to think it should be more complicated and they want to put their big brain to use and do something special with it. But I just don't think it needs to be complicated. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's wonderful to uh, you know hear and to know like your investment strategy has, has doesn't have to be something crazy. It could be simple and it'll work. And so, Morgan, I'm really enjoying the conversation we have, and I'm sure there's a ton of lessons we still could cover, but uh, I know we're coming close on time here. So I want to ask uh, my closing question, which are, what are two books that had a major impact on you, and how did they change your life? That's good. I, I, I have one book that I've talked about so much before. The book that did change my life, I'll try to think of some others to mix it up, but it's a book called The Big Change by a historian named Frederick Lewis Allen. So I'll leave that there, but I'll come up with, with a couple others. One is a book that is uh, uh, not very well known. I've never heard anyone else write about or talk about it, but as a guy, and I'm pretty sure the author's name is William Dawson, and the book is called A Quest for a Simple Life. And he was living uh, in London, and I believe the 18 late 1800s, and he moves to the country for his quest for a simple life of just like, and he just examines what matters to him in life and what his goals are and what's actually like, what is the purpose of life? And it's so well written and so thoughtful that that had a big impact on how I think about goals in life and what really matters, the quest for a simple life. I loved it. Um, one other book that I, that had a big impact on me is a book by a guy named Sam Arbsman who wrote a book called The Half-Life of Facts which the headline explains it all. It's just the long history of facts, things that we think are rock solid proofs of science that are actual, not just hunters, but are facts that we ended up realizing are not facts. Uh, and this is true in almost any scientific field, physics, chemistry, biology. Um, like he opens a book with this example that I really love of like the number of animals that were once deemed extinct, not, not just endangered, but deemed officially deemed extinct that, that 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 people go on to find these animals, like find other, you know, that, that they realize they're not extinct. It's like 70% of animals or something on the lines of animals that are deemed extinct that we go on to find. So like facts change, like, like things that we think are facts that had a big impact on just of me of just thinking about the world with a greater level of humility and realizing that there's actually a lot that we don't know. And there's a lot of things that we think we know that are not true. Awesome. Well, I, I've haven't I haven't read any of those books, so I'll definitely look into it. Yeah, I've heard that third one before about um, yeah the half life of facts. So I'm definitely really interested in that one. 
So, uh, Morgan, I'm sure listeners will want to learn more about you and, um, you know, follow you on social media. Can you tell people where's the best place for them to go? The best is Twitter. That's where I spend most of my time. My handle is Morgan Housel, first name and last name. Awesome. And the psychology of money, uh, when does it come out? September 8th. September 8th. Well, everyone, uh, if you're interested in finance or investing, I highly recommend getting this book. Uh, I gave it five out of five stars. It was a fascinating book. I I learned a lot. And uh, Morgan, I just want to say thank you for taking the time today to come on the reader's journey with us. Uh, It's been wonderful. And uh, I, I wish you the best of luck with your book launch. Thank you very much, Alex. This has been fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Reader's Journey. You can learn more about what's covered in today's podcast in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this podcast, the best way you can support it is by subscribing and leaving a positive review. If you're looking for reading tips or book recommendations, head over to alexandbooks.com. If you want to join my reading journey, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter by searching for Alex and Books. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you soon. Read on, everyone.